So in Matthew chapter 20, and um, we're going to read a couple of verses here in a moment, but uh, I would say one of the best, perhaps, one of the better, maybe, descriptions and depictions of the grace of God, I believe, is actually from a children's book, a well-known, well-beloved fantasy book you might have heard of. It. It's called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I've, I don't know if everyone's read it. I've read it a couple times. But C.S. Lewis wrote uh, this series called The Chronicles of Narnia, and his most famous book of that series is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this, of course, tells the story of the children, the Pevensey children, Lucy, Edmund, Susan, and Peter. And they go off to this place, and they enter into this magical world called Narnia that they enter by going through a wardrobe. It's a fantasy book, and there's a lot of allegories in the book uh, to the Christian walk and to the Christian life, C.S. Lewis being a devout Christian himself. And if you remember, uh, if you remember the book, our protagonists, the Pevensey children, they are now into this world of Narnia where there's talking animals and all sorts of crazy creatures, and they stumble upon this beaver, this talking beaver. And soon they are finding refuge in this beaver's home, and they're there. They're, the Pevenseys are talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and eventually. Um, Mr. Beaver reveals that they aren't there by any sort of happenstance or any sort of luck or anything like that. They are actually there fulfilling a prophecy, an age-old prophecy told long ago. And during the course of this conversation, the topic turns to this character called Aslan. Now, Aslan in the books and in the series is really an alternative version of Christ. He's the Christ figure throughout the books. He represents Jesus as this roaring lion. And Susan asks Mr. Beaver, who's, who's Aslan? And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, why don't you know? He is the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. And so Lewis himself has described Aslan as a Jesus figure. But Mr. Beaver continues, and I think this description is very telling. Mr. Beaver says, I tell you, he is the king of the whole wood, and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan, the lion, the great lion, and anyone who can appear before him without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And so Lucy asks this question, then he isn't safe? And then Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And that description of Aslan as being good, but not necessarily safe, I believe can, the same can be said of God's grace. Now, it may strike you odd or strangely funny or something like that, but in human terms, I believe that God's grace is not necessarily good, or excuse me, not necessarily safe, but it is definitely good. And actually, all of the time, God's grace might seem sometimes a little bit unfair, a little bit uh, dangerous, you might say. And I think Matthew 20 depicts this sort of dangerous grace quite truthfully for us. Remember this story? Matthew chapter 20, verse number 1. This, of course, is the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Look at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is an householder, which went out early in the morning to hire laborers into his vineyard. This is the story of the laborers in the vineyard, and this is the story of this master. He goes out early in the morning, it says. Now, that might not strike you as really early, but this is 
one of the earliest watches of the night. This is 3 o'clock in the morning that this vineyard owner is going out and he's hiring workers to come and begin their workday. He's beginning his workday really early. Verse 2. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And so they begin working. They agree to terms, a penny a day, which is a denarius, which is a normal day's wage in this, in this time, in this, in this day and age. It's a normal day's wage for what they would be doing. And so the work begins. Verse 3, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right I will give you. And they went their way. So later in the morning, the third hour now, this is 9 o'clock in the morning, more workers are hired, more workers are, are gathered together to labor in the vineyards. So now there's two sets of groups there, one working from about 3 in the morning, and now another working from now 9 in the morning. Look at verse 5. Again he went out about the 6th and the ninth hour and did likewise. So again... The master does the same thing again now at the 6th and ninth hours. That's 12 and 3 p.m. respectively. And, and who knows what's prompting this, this master's generosity? Why is he being so generous? Or maybe it's just the fact that his vineyard is just that large, that he has to have this many hands to work it. But regardless, now there's four separate groups of workers all working in the vineyard. Now verse 6. And about the 11th hour, that's about 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing idle and saith unto them, Why stand ye here idle all the day? They say unto him, Because no man hath hired us. He saith unto them, Go ye also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that shall ye receive. So evening comes, the 11th hour, 5 p.m. There's only one hour left in the workday. The traditional Jewish workday was from about 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So that 12-hour shift, there's only one hour left. And the master does the same thing again. He goes out into the marketplace, hires idle hands, and now there's five distinct groups of workers working less hours than the last. Now, Rational logic would conclude that those who have been laboring since 3 a.m. should be, receive more pay than the last who's only been laboring for one hour. That would seem logical. That would seem fair, right? But something strange happens when the master calls them in to receive their paychecks. Look at verse 8. So when even was come, the Lord of the vineyard saith unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, give them their pay, beginning from the first unto the last. There's the first strange thing. And when he came they were, that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man a penny. And there's another strange thing. So... What happens is the master switches things up and he calls in the guys who had started last, that started at the 11th hour, and he brings them in and pays them the same wage that he had, that he had begun paying the guys at, at 3 a.m. And so instantly the guys who are last in line, the guys who've been working the longest, you can immediately hear them. They start doing the math, right? They're like, oh, okay, so they're getting a penny. So if I get, I'm on 15 pennies now. I'm on 15 denarius because I've been working that many hours. They, you can hear them doing all the math in their heads, and now they're starting getting excited because what was originally just going to be a normal day's wage is now seeming like a really good payday. Like, this is going to be a good day, but watch what happens. 
they received every man a penny. Verse 10, but when the first came, they supposed that they should have received more. And they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good man of the house. They all get paid the same amount. They all go up to this clerk's desk. And instead of receiving an envelope full of all these 20s, they only get one 20. Can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine their faces? Like, what a seeming slap in the face to them. That they've been working all day since it says early in the morning. And they are very unhappy. They're murmuring and they're, and they're muttering. You could also kind of say they're cursing under their breath. They're cursing this vineyard owner. What kind of raw deal is this? And look at verse 12. This is where they really get angry at him. Saying, and when they received it, they murmured against the good man of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour, and thou hast made them equal to us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. What kind of raw deal is this? We have been working harder. We have been bearing the burden of the hot sun all day. We deserve more. You see, they thought they were worth more because they had worked longer and harder. And it's hard, you know, not to agree with them. It's hard for me to say that they're not right in this instance. Here's this well-to-do vineyard owner seemingly using and exploiting these workers for his own benefit, not giving them their just reward for their work and for their labor. And as their men receive their paychecks, they just bemoan the atrocity of this master. This isn't fair, they say. Verse 13. But he, that is the master, answered and said, Friend, I do thee no wrong. Didst thou not agree with me for a penny? Take that thine is, and go thy way. I will give unto this last, even as unto thee. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first, and the first last. For many be called, but few are chosen. Note this response here because it's so important. It almost seems a little short, a little gruff, a little ungracious. How unfair this master is being. How unkind he's acting. But the thing is that Jesus is making the point that he's not acting unfair at all. He's not acting unkind at all. And in fact, the master's response is quite similar to God the Father's response to us. You see, in the same way that the vineyard owner gives all the laborers the same exact wages, God gives all sinners the same grace. There's no varying, there's no difference. Jesus' point in this parable is that you can't work your way into more favor or more acceptance. It doesn't matter how long you've been waging war and working the fields. The grace of the gospel isn't a commodity to be bought or bartered or bargained. The grace of the gospel is simply and purely a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, really quick. Let me read this. But... God, Paul says, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness to us through Christ Jesus. For by grace 
are ye saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what he's talking about. It's a free gift. One writer says it this way, that that which is of a gift of grace must not at all be earned, purchased, or procured by any work or works performed. The condition of a free gift is only this, take and have. You see, once you make a gift, having to have some work behind it, it's no longer a gift, it's a reward. It's a prize. It's something that you do something for, and then you get it as like a trophy. That's not the grace of the gospel. It's a gift. You see, this master, he wasn't obligated to hire these workers. He went out in search of them. He wasn't coerced or he wasn't forced into doing anything. He wasn't even called upon by these workers to hire them to let them earn something. He went out in search of them. The master hunted them down, you could say, and he, he hunted these laborers down and he graciously offered both responsibility and opportunity. And the same can be said of God's grace. God's grace, God's son, that is, hunts us down and he comes in search of us, his lost sheep, and he brings us home, enveloping and surrounding us in such an overwhelming grace, which likewise gives us responsibility and opportunity and actually the ability to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There's a poem called The Hound of Heaven. You may have not heard of this, but it's, uh, The Hound of Heaven is written by a guy named Francis Thompson. He was living in the 1800s, and he was actually one of the men who sort of was a comrade and a compatriot of J.R.R. Tolkien and G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis himself. He was one of their friends, so to speak, and uh, he actually inspired much of Tolkien's writings and Chesterton's writings. And Francis Thompson was actually a desperate and destitute man. I think he was Roman Catholic, but he battled a lifelong addiction to opium, and he actually battled a lifelong illnesses that went along with that. But all the while, he tells of God's chasing him down, that he was hunted down by God. And actually, he, he refers to it in this poem, The Hound of Heaven, how as just like a hound is going after a hare, God is chasing after him as much as he wants to flee him. He says this in his poem, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of mine own mind. And in the midst of tears, I hid from him. See, he's hiding from God. He's being chased by God and he's fleeing from him. But God and his grace isn't swayed. Because look at this testimony in the next stanza. Nigh and nigh draws the chase with unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, and majestic instancy. And past those noised feet, a voice yet comes more fleet. Lo, not content thee who is not content in me. God is hunting him down. The grace of God likewise runs after us, as it says, with unperturbed pace and deliberate speed. Grace is that, just that, God's active acceptance of us that doesn't wait for us to search for it. It comes in search of us. It comes in search of us. Again, God's grace 
isn't a system in which we can barter for more holiness by performing better or working harder. Just like these, these laborers thought. If we work harder, we get paid more. You see, all of grace, everything that you can imagine about it, is wrapped up in God's Son. As it says in 2 Corinthians, God's unspeakable gift. The gospel of grace is given equally to everyone, regardless of their past. Making it seem, we could say, a little unruly and a little maybe unfair and maybe even a little dangerous. That it gives to someone that comes to Christ at age 5 the same amount of grace as someone who comes to, age, that comes to Christ at age 50. As someone who's grown up in church their whole life and another person who's maybe an alcoholic and they come to Christ. They get the same saving grace in Jesus. Jesus, like this master, shreds all senses of deservedness and entitlement. And he distributes this wage, this grace, liberally and lavishly on all of these laborers. And you could say this, on all who believe. And to us, and from our perspective, this seems unfair. It's injustice. This, this, this master has committed this injustice. But Christ's retort, I think, to that sentiment is the same as the master's in verse 15. He says, is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is, it th- is thine eye evil because I am good? You could say, like, are we, who are we to begrudge God's generosity? Who are we to put conditions on this sort of conditional, unconditionality? We might say that this is unfair, but once we utter those words, we are on very dangerous ground. The thing that God is unfair, and because, spoiler alert, you don't want God to be fair. You don't want God's fairness. If God were to deal fairly with you, you would already be in hell because of your sin. Have you ever thought about that? That if God dealt only with you based on what you deserve, we'd be condemned already because of our sin. So pleading for God's fairness then is actually like spiritual suicide. It's crying for death. God's fairness, in short, spells our doom. See, we would already be condemned forever. John 3.18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. You don't want God to be fair. You don't want God's fairness. Actually, the believer's only hope is in God's unfairness. In an unfair God, dispensing to us not what we deserve, but just the very opposite. You could say this, that our only hope in our entire lives are dependent upon the fact that Christ was dealt unfairly by God so that God can deal unfairly with you. Giving you life when you deserve death and giving you salvation when you deserved damnation. That's what the old early church fathers called the glorious exchange. As Jesus was hanging on that cross, your sins were put on him and Christ's righteousness were put on you. That's God's unfairness. That Jesus, the perfect son of God, was dealt with as a sinner so that you and I could be dealt with as sons and daughters. Your rebellion put on Christ and Christ's righteousness on you. So when you're tempted to shake your fist at God and shout, that's not fair, like these laborers did, just remember how God dealt with his own son on the cross. 
As Jesus bore the weight of the whole world's sin, and as He hung on that cross, and all of those sins were put on Him, God the Father turns His face away. He he shuns His own Son in that moment because of all the sin that was put on Him. And Christ cries, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? That's God's unfairness. The forsaking of His own Son. You You see, God the Father turned away from His own Son so that He would never have to turn away from us. Praise God for that. That Jesus endured the brunt of God's undeserved justice so that you and I could enjoy the beauty of His undeserved grace. That's the gospel. That Jesus endured the brunt of God's justice so we can enjoy the beauty of God's grace. That the sinless one is condemned so that the guilty can go free. That the blessed one bears the curse. That the cursed one can bear the blessing. That the life The living one can die, that the dead can live again. That's God's unfairness. That God the Father can deal with us in righteous unfairness because He dealt with His Son in the same. That's the gospel. Let me read you this quick uh, passage from a writer. His name is Horatius Bonar. And he wrote this, this series of tracts called the Kelso Tracts. And I think this passage sums up our, our talk pretty, pretty nicely. Bonar says, God spared not Jesus that he might spare us. He delivered him up that he might not deliver up us. And he parted with him that he might not part with us. He gave him to be the curse that he might obtain for us the blessing. He poured on him the vials of his infinite wrath that he might pour on us the full measure of his infinite love. And he dealt with his son as a sinner in order that he he might deal with us as righteous, perfectly, infinitely righteous. And he inflicted on him all that should have been inflicted on us in order that he might bestow upon us all that should be bestowed upon him. And even more, he does not ask us to pay for it or to endeavor to deserve it or to qualify ourselves for receiving it, but just that we should consent unto it. Like we said earlier, it's a gift. Take and have. There's no conditions on it. There's no prerequisites for it. There's nothing that you can do in order to earn it. It's take and have. That's the gift that Jesus is talking about here. That's the wage that he gives out here. The heartbeat of the gospel is just that. It's unmerited and unlimited mercy and favor and forgiveness. That's this. It's the rhythm of Scripture The grace of God, which is unconditionally free and beautifully dangerous. Giving to people that think they deserve more the same amount. So whether, as I said, you're five or whether you're 50, you can call upon the same saver and receive the same saving grace. Let's pray.